Thank you very much. And uh, gentlemen, good afternoon. It's the morning here in California, and uh, we're going to let you take over for the next hour. All right. That sounds great. Thank you, Francis. Really looking forward to this. And uh, obviously, as our day continues, a big one here uh, with Race Industry Week. So we appreciate everyone who is signed on right now and tuned in. And our next panelist, uh, we're going to talk about the UK and US collaboration uh, powers major series from 2022 uh, with the Motorsport Industry Association. And as you can see, uh, our panelists here, Chris Aylett, the CEO of MIA, Pat Simmons, Formula One's Chief Technical Officer, and Peter Digby, uh, the Managing Director of Extracts. So gentlemen, welcome. And Chris, let me just sort of turn it over to you to get things started here. I know we've got a lot that we're going to be covering here in the next hour or so. Hi, Pat. Well, thank you very much for the handover, but you can stick your nose in and questions in whenever you like, because I know they're coming in thick and fast. I was enjoying watching those whilst I was enjoying Ross Braun. So thanks for this. And thank you, Pat and Peter, for signing in and linking up with us. I know you've both had a pretty hectic day, and I don't know if either of you got a chance to look at any part of Ross, but I made a few notes and I've dug out some tricky questions for you, Pat. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, Ross and I have actually been in the same meeting for the last few hours. He he dropped out to talk to you, and now he's taken over, and I've dropped out to talk to you. So we're talking 2026, so uh, we've got a little bit of time to catch up. Well, listen, guys, both of you uh, have a fabulous track record, if you like, in motorsport. I mean, you, Pat, are, are 40-plus years in, in your area, and Peter started uh, at Williams all those years ago, and I think it would be useful for the audience who, if you could just uh, shorten that uh, and just explain your background, your personal background. And of course, in your case, Pat, there is hardly a Formula One champion from, uh, from Senna to Schumacher that you haven't at some time been the race engineer of. And I, I think people forget that your, your beginnings were definitely trackside and very much hands-on. And just touch on that and the role you currently play. Uh, Ross was very clear as to the link that you have with the Formula One. And Peter, I know you've come all that way from the Williams team. I think you were general manager of Williams Formula One all those years ago, and you helped set up Extrac, and now it is this multi-million dollar business, both here in the UK and also in the USA. So guys, just take the floor for a little while and try and uh, let the audience know of your background, please. Can I go first, Peter? Yeah, I'll kick off first then. Uh, yeah, in fact, well, it's, it goes back to yeah the late to late seventies when I started to work for Williams. I trained as an aircraft engineer, but I went to Williams and covered for Ross Braun. Uh, he was a race mechanic, and I joined um, really to look after gearboxes. But within a month, Ross was leaving the team to look after his wife as she had their first daughter. Uh, so I kept one on the team for three or four races and covered for him. Uh, he never went back on the team, and I actually came off it because uh, I wanted to carry on some studies. And as you, you mentioned, yeah, over the period of uh, six years, I rose production controller, factory manager, um, and then left to go and join Ross and Adrian Newey uh, in the same team. So that was pretty awesome, where we, we joined the Team Haas Formula One team for about 18 months with Teddy Mayer and uh, Tyler Alexander, which was a great team. But of course, the sponsors withdrew and all everyone went their way. And I went to join uh, Mike Endine at Extract, who just set up the company. Uh, there were four of us when I joined, um, and I obviously brought along a lot, a lot of F1 contacts, and Mike had rallying, etc. So we just decided to to get involved in doing very high quality gearboxes um, in much reduced lead times compared to what was uh, around at that time, uh, and very quickly rose to a position where we were supplying nine of the current uh, of that that batch of Formula One teams. Uh, with many, many championships. Um, and uh, and then the business grew from there into sports cars and touring cars. Um, and uh, thanks to Chris, I went to the States uh, probably in about the mid-90s, I think, Chris, wasn't it? Late, about some time around then. And we went to Charlotte and we went up to Indianapolis and you showed me what was in America. We'd, I mean, we'd already supplied uh, the Penske team and Lola and Reynard with lots of their product, uh, but that was more remote. Uh, but once after that visit, we then uh, started work in the States and by 2003 opened our first office or facility in, in Indianapolis. Um, and that, that grew. And when we opened that, uh, by then we had already secured a one make contract to supply IndyCar uh, with one gearbox supplying the whole grid. And this was this was one of the sort of first steps of, of this one make uh, product, which is now 
spreading throughout motor racing. And I'd like to have a discussion with Pat about Formula One uh, when we've uh, later on in this conversation. Uh, but yeah, the, when, when we opened in Indianapolis, I think 100% of our business was IndyCar. Uh, and today it's probably 20%. So we've grown a lot of our business in the, in the US into other, other sectors. Um, we opened up in North Carolina in 2010. There was, at that point, there was a bit of a shift. Firstly, you had the likes of Penske's and Ganassi starting to get involved in NASCAR. Um, but also there were some other people moving from Indianapolis to North Carolina, and it looked like that was going to become the center of, of U.S. motorsport. And in fact, I think you'd probably say Indianapolis and North Carolina are about equal now. Um, so we've got a facility there. Uh, and now today we employ about uh, just under 30 people in those two offices. They both just doubled in size. We've got about 12,000 square foot facilities in both places. And they both operate as a stores and engineering support um, and just particularly for NASCAR, which I'll come on to uh, later in this conversation. But yeah, Extrap is a company. We employ 360 people now, uh, turnover about $75 million. Um, we export 70% of what we make from the UK, which we're very, uh, very proud of. And Extract for a long time was being at 100% employee owned. Um, all the employees had a share ownership in the company. It's only just recently changed when we've had to substantially expand our investment and double our factory size and get involved in a lot more hybrid and electric vehicle products. But uh, yeah, good fun. I get paid for hobby. I'll do it for nothing, as, as you would, Chris, I'm sure. <laughs> I think nothing is a different value to some <laughs> folk, but yeah, nothing. <laughs> yeah. Pat, you, you, I mean, that's a pretty good story from Peter. Now, yours is even more colourful, I think. I'm not uh, sure about that. <laughs> from the early days, it certainly is. And the people that you've touched as a, you know, in business as you go through. Over to you, Pat. Yeah, well, I started off actually as... A, I was lucky enough to be an undergraduate apprentice with Ford. And uh, this was in the mid-70s. And anyone who knows the UK motor industry in the mid-70s would probably know that's not a great place to, to be. So I, when I graduated from Cranfield University, I decided I'd get involved with motor racing. And it was a three-year project. Uh, it's lasted about 44 years now. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm getting the hang of it. And I started off um, designing cars in the sort of lower formulas, Formula Ford, uh, Ford 2000, Formula 3. And uh, in 1981, I joined the Tolman Formula One team, which was just starting up then. In fact, I was employee number 20. We were quite small teams in those days. And I started uh, putting together the wind tunnel programs and things like that, um, running R&D and race engineering. Uh, as I say, we were small. We had to be sort of um, multidisciplined engineers in those days. And through the years, I, I've remained in Formula One, uh, working at uh, Tolman, sort of morphed into Benetton, which morphed into Renault. Um, I stayed with the, the team through through those years. Um, seen the the other end of the field, working for uh, Marussia for a little while, and then went to Williams. Uh, where we, we had a lot of success, success 2014, 15, 16. And then in 2017, I decided to sort of hop over the fence a little bit and go from being a competitor to getting involved with regulations. And what was behind that was, um, as many of you will know, Formula One uh, had really been run by, by Bernie Eccleston for many, many years. He held the commercial rights and um, he worked with the FIA, but really he, he ran the show. And when uh, he or the venture capital people behind him sold out to Liberty Media, uh, it was decided to set up a, a technical group within Formula One because we wanted to really see how we could improve the racing. If we wanted to grow the sport, we wanted to understand uh, what it was that attracted people, what it was that put people off, uh, and really understand things. And the, the, the phrase that I continually use is to have evidence-based decision-making. Uh, and I think for many, many years, there was a lot of shooting from the hip, and let's do this, let's do that, let's try wider cars, bigger cars, faster cars, slower cars, smaller cars, you know, it went on and on and on. So I, I set up a group of engineers that we could study mainly the design of the cars but we we do a lot more than that and just to give you one sort of random example we um 
we actually measure the, the galvanic skin response of people who are watching races. So it's effectively like wiring up part of our audience to lie detectors. Uh, and so as they, they will go on and they'll sort of rate the race in a, a normal sort of uh, way with a, with a tablet, you know, every five minutes saying, this, I'm enjoying this, I'm not enjoying it, et cetera. But we, we look behind that to get the real evidence behind it, take some of this sort of cognitive bias out of it and actually see what they are thinking. So very wide ranging what we're doing. We're looking at the cars, we're looking at the fans. Uh, and then another string to our bow really is that we, we also are now quite involved with, with circuit design. And tomorrow morning I'm off to Jeddah for the first Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. And really excited about that because with the demise of Vietnam before we actually got racing on it, it's the first circuit that we as Liberty Media, uh, as the commercial rights holder, have been heavily involved in the design of the circuit. And uh, we think that uh, assuming it gets finished tonight, it will be quite spectacular. <laughs> Well, thank, <laughs> thank you, Pat, and thanks, Peter. Uh, I was just sitting here. I'm really delighted that Lynn St. James, Peter, has congratulated on that growth. So I presume she's talking about your business growth. So, But uh, it's lovely to hear from you, Lynn. And you were always a great host to us all when we were at, uh, at Indy and elsewhere. So uh, it shows this stretch of this uh, kind of, or the reach of this kind of audience. Um, I was pleased to, the Motorsport Industry Association, MIA, was set up 25 years ago, or over 25 years, and I'd, I'd been running it uh, pretty much most of those years. And both these young men, uh, Peter and Pat, have known of that, uh, that organization. And we have many friends over there in the States. And I just encourage you all, please get in touch with the MIA if you want any contacts in the UK with any of these guys or you want to do any business buying or selling it doesn't matter we're here to just help the industry um i'll just tell you that i raced my first car and a tvr grand Turo when i was 18 and i won a, an egg cup um i seem to remember and i raced for over 20 years nearly 25 years and i ended up running a race series around europe and i was then racing my can-am mclaren m8 uh, 8.4 litre, which I still dream about. That's uh, just about as good as it gets in, as far as I'm concerned in racing. Uh, a nice, safe, comfortable drive, that was. Uh, anyway, that's, so we're all, all three of us are mad keen on our racing uh, careers and mine lasted another 25 years or so because of um, the marvellous MIA. So I'm going to move on and ask you some questions. Peter, I just want to touch base with you in terms of your USA business and how do you service the USA customers? Do you do, do you service at all the racetracks? Because there's a heck of a lot of series that you're now involved in. Um, and presumably you can't service it all from parts depots. So how do you look after your customers from the UK to the USA and then out of the tracks? Uh, well, actually, we, we are pretty hands-on in the US. Um, it's, it is a different model to us uh, compared to the UK. I mean, the British touring cars, we support each an individual race, but there's so many races around Europe uh, that we can't really support all of those other than the big ones like Le Mans. But when we get to the States, yeah, we are, we are there in the, in the paddock with a truck full of spares for a lot of the sports car races and a lot of the, um, the IndyCar races. Uh, and next year, unusually, um, the NASCAR model that we are introducing includes service. Um, NASCAR is very, very special. There are a lot of cars, 40 cars or so, racing at about 40 tracks or more, or 40 races, I should say. Um, but of course, I'm, I'm sure you know that each, each driver or each number, uh, there are seven different cars um, you know, with all the different circuits from short tracks to long tracks, to dirt races even. Um, so uh it's it's really challenging so we have to uh introduce this year we're, we're bringing out uh, three different specifications of gearboxes uh, and of course you've got races all over the world uh, all over the U uh, us um so a few days apart and so you can't just have uh, one truck driving around so we've got to we've had to take on 10 extra guys uh, to help service that operation so yeah we do operate uh say so we're based in north carolina based in indianapolis so a lot of people just come to our our facilities there and buy spares and take them themselves and they'll always have a spare gearbox uh, amongst them um, but NASCAR is very different and we've got to supply 300 gearboxes before the first race um, and this is I touched on earlier this 
this one make concept that's that's going around. So uh, I think before we came along in NASCAR, there were seven different gearbox suppliers all doing uh, tuning their own four-speed H-pattern gearbox. Obviously, the the cars are a lot more advanced now. With the the Delara have have helped design a, a car. Um, which now, from a gearbox point of view, has a five-speed and it's a sequential gearbox, uh, but it's a transaxle as well. So um, it's it's much more uh, much more demanding um, from a manufacturing point of view, uh, but they last. The idea is they last a lot longer, and it's far more versatile as well. So yeah, we can uh, we can accommodate all these different changes without the vast stock of parts that they they used to have. So that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to cut down on the inventory. Um, and try and standardise the parts. Uh, and the phrase I, I heard was they, they wanted to stop the uh, stop the, the competitors from competing within the gearbox. So, as you heard Ross say, and it was music to my ears, that he doesn't want people spending half a million dollars on trying to improve the efficiency of a gearbox by 0.01%. Uh, and that is what these standard gearboxes are all about: getting the economies of scale, fixing the regulations so that they are more reliable, so they're not designed to break one lap after the end of the race uh, and um, making them a little, little bit more simple, but really large volumes of a fixed product that the teams cannot develop anymore. When we put a gearbox together, we'll put it into a test cell and sort out the oil levels and, the, uh, and make sure that they're all built within very, very tight constraints. Because if you're supplying a whole grid of cars, you can't have some that are more efficient than others. So we have to come up with a very tight criteria uh, for the gearboxes have to pass so that all of them are exactly the same for each team. Um, but then they fit them and forget them. Gearboxes never win races, they only lose them. That's the old saying, engines win races, so we're just at the back, you're meant to forget about us. So and that's the model that we've got in NASCAR, we've got it in uh, Australian supercars, we've got it in IndyCar, and of course, under the, another word of homologation, uh, we've got it in many, many hundreds of sports cars, which all race in GT3, where you almost have a fixed specification of gearbox or and other parts fixed up especially in the car for five years or so and again it keeps the costs down uh, and spreads that big engineering cost at the, at the start over a large volume of parts well thanks peter i have a feeling pat might join in on that discussion because one of the subjects that uh, i don't know whether you listened into ross but it leads really well into next year he said you know undoubtedly pat will mention this next year's changes that are going to take place anyway around the, the, the vehicle. You mentioned aerodynamic changes, 18-inch wheels, new tyres, and a growth in controlled items, items that the fans won't see, um, but areas of competition uh, is, has been improved. Can you just touch on that, uh, that change that we're going to start to see next year in Formula One, Pat? Rather touched on by Peter saying um, he agrees with elements of this for sure. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. I mean, of course, the, the major changes, are, uh, the, the work we've done on aerodynamics and tyres, all, all of which are just about making the racing closer. But um, it, it's absolutely right what Ross said and, and Peter has reiterated, that there are elements of the car that really um, they can absorb a vast amount of money they become minute performance differentiators. They are totally hidden to the, to the public. And, you know, I really question why, why we do that. I think that since I joined Formula One and sort of went over to the other side, effectively, I've been pleasantly surprised by the number of our fans who really do have a genuine, genuine technical interest not necessarily with a great deal of technical know-how always so it's not just the engineers who, who have this interest there are, there are a lot of the um they are pretty avid fans but they're not necessarily from a technical background but they still have an interest in things but nevertheless you know there, there are an awful lot of parts on the car that are, are effectively hidden because the teams are very very secretive about them and the trouble is that these things tend to even out and as we've been talking about gearboxes, there's a, there's a great example there that some years ago, we all almost simultaneously developed seamless shift gearboxes. And at the time we did it, they were worth about 0.3 of a second around a, a, a typical lap. And a seamless shift gearbox, really, uh, there is effectively no torque interruption as you, you shift up through the gears. Now, everyone's got them. 
They definitely cost more than a, a conventional gearbox. Uh, and there is no performance advantage left in them because everyone's got the same. And so, you know, really, I, I question why do we do it? And how many people know how they work? How many, if you, you know, if you said to even the relatively technical fans, you know, do you think a twin barrel gearbox is better than a single barrel gearbox? You get a bit of a blank look. Uh, and so, yeah, there's there's a lot of case for standardizing. Um, of course, we've got a cost cap in Formula One now, which I think is one of the biggest steps forward that we've made in many, many years. But even so, there's no point in wasting money. Um, you know, yes, you can say, well, the team should control themselves. But the trouble is that that's great in theory, but it doesn't necessarily lead to good racing. You know, if, if one team um, has spent all their money and gone in the wrong direction, spent all their money on, you know, a, a seamless shift gearbox or something that's not really giving them much performance advantage, then all it does is, is split the field up. And we've been doing everything we can to get the field closer together. So I'm a fan of, of having more spec parts, um, but balancing it. And, and really, you know, those, those parts that are, are very obvious, which in our case is largely the aerodynamics and, and things like that. Yeah, let's have some competition there. But there are other areas where either it's not particularly relevant or it's prohibitively expensive. And I, I would say an example of that is tyres. You know, I, I have a particular interest in tyres. I think they're fascinating things. But much as I enjoyed the days when we were fighting between Michelin and Bridgestone, we had Goodyear in and, and uh, all these sort of people, the fact is that was an incredibly expensive way to go racing. And it did actually destroy the racing sometimes because if one of the tyre manufacturers on a particular day had a big advantage then you had almost a, a two-part field so I'm quite happy with even something that is as big a performance contributor as the tyres with them being a single component if you like and yet you know I, I will get technical directors in the team saying no 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 we want to do our own gearbox and I, I really do question why. Hey, can I can I jump in and ask a question here? I'm curious about this because in my world, um, I'm in the NASCAR world. That my office is here at Charlotte Motor Speedway. But when you start to talk about adding spec parts and doing this, on one hand, we hear a lot of the ownership saying this is just costing us too much money. You have to find ways to save us money. Yet those same ownership people are doing things like spending seven figures developing new pit guns just so they can have faster pit stops. And we go to something you know that becomes now a spec pit gun with Paoli, but how do you find that balance? How do you manage the, hey, we want to let them have their own creativity and finding their speed, but we also really have to save them from themselves because that's what they're asking for, even though they're going to go back to the shop and try and spend as much as they can developing everything they can. Well, I think the first answer to that, Brad, is, is the budget cap because the, the, the budget cap is a great thing. It, uh, it allows them uh, a great deal of stupidity. So in other words, you know, they, they can go off and spend it on the wrong thing. Um, the, and, you know, you mentioned wheel guns. I mean, wow, the, the money we spend on pit equipment in Formula One would run a Formula Two team for a year. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the trouble is that when you, when you allow that sort of freedom, you will get think, money spent in the wrong direction and then you, you split up the field and, that, and that's a shame. So you, you have to find this balance. And the real answer to your question is it's quite a difficult balance to, to find. It is a sport. We're looking for performance differentiation. We certainly don't want to reward incompetence or anything like that. But at, at, at the moment, or certainly up until this season, there has been far too much emphasis on performance comes from dollars. And uh, I, I think that we are leveling that out. So we, we had this, we, we set ourselves several, several objectives in 2017 when, when Liberty took over. Um, yes, to get the cars racing closer together, but also we, we have about a 3% split between the front of the grid and the back of the grid in terms of performance. And we set ourselves a target trying to halve that. And you know, ways of doing that are to standardize some of the parts, think about what's difficult for the small teams, try and eliminate those. And, and in our aerodynamic work, we've had that in our in 
our minds as well. So it's not just about close following. It's about trying to um, make things a little bit easier. And believe it or not, the, the 18 inch wheels, which a lot of people think we've done that to sort of modernize the cars. Yes, it's, it's good in that respect, but it, it also, because the tire is such a difficult thing to model aerodynamically, by having a stiffer sidewall, we actually make it a little bit easier for everyone. If we make it easier for everyone, that actually gives more of a leg up to the teams at the bottom of the grid than the top of the grid. I Chris, think you're muted, you? Chris. Yeah, sorry. I hope that helps, uh, Brad. I, Peter, I'm going to dive into some of the questions that are coming in, and I'll do the same with you, Pat, because we've got an audience who are asking questions, not just... Uh, not just me. So some easy ones, Peter, kind of not one word, but short answers. What will be the challenges to gearboxes and drive chains for electric cars? As, uh, road cars, I guess, or is that motorsport? Sport? I guess for road cars. Yeah, um, yeah I guess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're only involved in what we'd almost call R&D for uh, uh, the electric and hybrid market. We, we Our speciality has been... Uh, manufacturers coming to us with a whole number of different schemes and layouts and wanting to know very quickly or having having the parts very quickly so they can go off and run their their, their different layouts and see which one is is best uh, for us with an electric cars quite often it's noise we've got to try and keep those uh, uh, um, gearboxes as quiet as they can because that uh, obviously noise is more uh, noticeable when you've got electric but uh, but also strength uh, and inertia uh, we do a lot in formula e um, and there you're really you're trying to set, make the gearbox as efficient as you possibly can because they've obviously got limited very limited amount of power um, and so yeah we've come up had to come up with some pretty fancy gear teeth and fancy gear designs but um, yeah we, we'll you know you give us a challenge we'll we'll come up with the best way of doing it. Uh, thanks Peter. Pat do you do you at the FIA uh, do you yeah you're not the FIA do you see need for more crossover of race technology to production cars? Yeah, I saw that question come up. And, and perhaps I should explain that I, I'm Formula One, not the FIA. Now, we work very closely together, but Formula One is the commercial rights holder. FIA is the regulator. And uh, in the past, never the twain shall meet. We, we're trying to bring it closer together. But, you know, you need to be careful. It, it, it would be wrong for the commercial rights holder to be uh, doing too much regulation but um do we do we need to be road relevant i think is really what what we're talking about and the answer is i think we do i i, I prefer to call it society relevant because i think that there are so many aspects of what we do in formula one that have knock-ons way beyond the sort of automotive industry i mean i think everyone knows the the um the favorite story of how Williams Formula One team or the, the offshoot from Williams Formula One team developed uh, a new type of shells for supermarket fridges that saved a huge amount of energy by applying the sort of aerodynamic knowledge that they gained in Formula One. So we do need to be society relevant. And of course, um, I, I hope uh, at some point we're going to talk about sustainability, Chris, because that's you know our, our big push at the moment. Uh, it becomes difficult uh, as the, the sort of light mobility sector moves more and more to electrification. Um, the power densities that they, they're dealing with are just not suitable for, you know, a, a big racing car like a Formula One car or an Indy car or, or anything like that. But there's still an awful lot that we, we can contribute. And, you know, the, uh, the electric machines on, on a Formula One car, the battery technology, the power electronics, they are all absolutely state of the art. Um, we have C ratings on our batteries, which is effectively, a, if you like, it's a way of thinking how fast you can charge a battery that are way beyond anything on, on a, a road car. And a few years ago, I, I think we were all questioning how relevant is, is that? But of course now everyone's saying, well, yes, we are worried about range, but we're actually more worried about charging the, the batteries quickly. So a lot of the technology we've developed uh, silicon carbide in, in the power electronics, some of the, the battery technology, certainly the battery management, um, we're really pushing towards the ability to charge very fast. So lots of things like that are relevant um, and, and they must remain so. Thanks, Pat. And Peter, an easy one for you. Is a seamless shift, this is Lawrence, is a seamless shift gearbox 
similar to a dual clutch transmission? Uh, yeah, I, I, yes, there is. Um, there are different ways of doing it. As, as Pat uh, inferred, they use a, a twin barrel arrangement in Formula One um, with a single clutch, um, which is uh, one way of doing it, but needs a very, very, very high pressure hydraulic system and a computer to run it. Uh, X-Track actually has a patented system uh, where we actually have a single barrel as well uh, for a seamless shift. So there's different ways of doing it. And we use that quite a lot in motorcycling. Um, but uh, yeah, they're they're all pretty much the same uh, same thing. Okay, um, Pat, here's an interesting one that I'm going to pick up just so that you can clarify. It's a very simple question, and think hard because they they people want to know clearly: Is Formula One owned by Liberty Media, or are they getting it wrong? Now, what I know is that there is a hundred year license from FIA, as I understand it. But go for it, Pat, and try and explain. Easily. Wow. You call that a simple question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess it depends what you mean by owned. Exactly. Uh, Liberty Media own the commercial rights to Formula One. So what does my company do? Um, we put on the, the show. We negotiate with the promoters. We negotiate with the circuits. We negotiate with the, the sort of major sponsors. We bring the teams together. Uh, we work with the FIA, who are the regulator, to, to ensure, you know, that we are the budget cap, for example, uh, originated within our organisation. But as I said, we, we can't write rules that, that would be against sort of competition practice. So the FIA regulate things. Um, we pay the FIA to to perform that regulatory um, function. Um, but we we actually, I guess, yeah, run the show one hopes makes the, the, the profit as well. That's good. And the, the it is, uh, I'm right in saying that the brand or something of Formula One is owned in quite a long contract with the FIA. Is that not right? The the, the commercial rights are, yes. There was a hundred yeah. year agreement signed uh, some years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Um, well, let's move on, if we may, and touch on, uh, I noticed, well, I just noticed something else I'd just say. I've got... Um, one of our friends um, asked that question, Don Taylor, and I just want to point out, Don Taylor is the director of the MIA in the States, as is Jeremy Byrne. Both of them will be at the PRI show uh, on the extract booth. So if you go into PRI and you want to talk international trade or international motorsport business, uh, Peter is hosting the MIA directors, Don and Jeremy Byrne. So I just wanted to spot that and thank Don for one of those many questions. Um, now, let's talk about the future, Pat. Uh, I was going to say, where is F1 going? But let's focus on the sustainability question that came up and was handled by Ross and further discussions, because uh, uh, you're right at the heart of this sustainable future uh, for Formula One. And I know you're, you're proud of the progress you're making and excited by certain changes that are bound to come. So over to you, Pat, as a starter, and then we'll have your views, Peter, too. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is one of our, our big things. And as I said earlier, you know, in the middle of another call, we were talking about 2026 engines and the 2026 engine will run on a, a fully sustainable fuel. Now, you might say, well, that's a, a long way away. But the fact is we're, we're doing it properly and we are not prepared to accept sort of greenwashing. We're not prepared to accept uh, fuels that, you know, on, on the basis of they, or on the surface they, they look as if they're a, a, a green fuel but the reality is they're, they're anything but um, so we're, we're putting a lot of effort into it working with a lot of partners we're doing a lot of testing a lot of modeling at the moment um, and sustainability is absolutely important to us and, and I'm sure Ross probably shared with you our, our sort of strap line that no one should be ashamed of being a Formula One fan and that is really really important to us and you know over the next few years uh, we need to take action to ensure that that remains the case and you know I can envisage a time when for example you know we're racing in the middle of somewhere like Singapore and we're probably the only internal combustion engines that are in that city because everything else will be electric. So we, we have to show that we're, we're doing the right things. So we have a, a sustainable fuel program, a carbon neutral fuel program, and we're promoting the, 
the competition there because uh, I don't want to get into too many technical details, but at the moment, what's very interesting and unusual about a Formula One engine is that we regulate the amount of fuel that goes into it. And then you add as much air as you need to, to make the thing run, which is totally opposite to the way we've designed racing engines forever and a day, which has always been to get as much air into them as possible and then add the fuel that's required. Now, that in, in that sort of switching things over, we've actually promoted a lot of efficiency. And uh, we're very, very proud of the fact that our Formula One engines are running at 52% thermal efficiency, whereas a, a regular road car is sort of in the low 30s. So we're very proud of what we've done at the moment, but we also want to now really cut our carbon footprint at the moment. Uh, well, entirely. Um, we, we have a carbon footprint of about a quarter of a million tonnes CO2 equivalent right now, and 0.7 of a percent of that actually comes from the cars. But nevertheless, if we go to a carbon neutral fuel, while it won't make a huge impact on our footprint, we feel it will demonstrate to the world that, you know, there is a way of running internal combustion engines with much, much lower emissions. And, and actually, it's not just CO2, because, because we're synthesizing the fuel, we can take all the bad things out that, you know, happen to be the remains of dinosaurs or whatever, you know, that we, we have to put up with. So we can make very, very clean fuels. And um, yeah, I think we're going to get very good results from it. And yes, there will be other formulae who will go to their so-called sustainable fuels be before us. And in fact, uh, as Liberty Media, we, we actually own Formula 2 and Formula 3 as well. And we will be pushing the, the fuels into Formula 2 and Formula 3 before Formula 1, partly because it's a slightly easier problem, partly because we need less of the fuel. And one of the problems right now is there's just not, not enough product around. But we're really pushing on that. And then on the, the electrical side, we're very keen. Uh, I'm sure everyone knows that there are some there are some questionable materials in, in electric vehicles, the cobalts, the nickels, the rare earths, things like that. So we're, we're really investigating that and trying to get a real cradle to grave view of, of where all these things are, both in their carbon footprint and the, the sort of moral sustainability, if you like. So we, we really are trying to look at these and we want to, I, I think that the day someone really stands up and criticizes us or, or we have, you know, some sort of demonstration on the starting grid from Extinction Rebellion or something like that, the day that happens, it's too late. We've missed the boat. We, we have to preempt it. We have to make ourselves sustainable. We have to make sure that people know about it and they're proud of what we're doing. Um, I'll tell you what, before I move to you, Peter, I'm going to ask Brad whether anything that I notice you nodding enthusiastically at what Pat was saying, do you think how close are NASCAR to sitting back and looking at what they're doing in Formula One and saying, uh, it's not let's change overnight, but the direction of travel of Formula One, uh, have they got it right, perhaps, Brad? You know, the interesting thing uh, to me from my seat, uh, and we're actually going to have NASCAR on on Friday here at yeah. Race Industry Week as well, which would be good. But is, you know, for the longest time, NASCAR resisted a lot of some newer technology things. And in a lot of ways, there's a lot that got developed in the race cars that was very technical and very advanced for what it was. But now we're going to this new car for the first time, independent rear suspension, uh, the gearbox versus transmission, a lot of different things that have never been in a NASCAR stock car before. They've also resisted a lot of electronics. And I know there's a question about that as well. You know, at one point when traction control and some things were starting to come into play in different racing systems, Series, they literally took the ignition box and mounted it up on the dash so it was out of reach from the driver or anybody else and they, they've managed things that way and when you look at how high tech um, some of the elements are on open wheel cars formula one indy car whatever it might be all the things that are on the cars as you see them going around the track nascar resisted putting those on the race cars at any time during a race weekend now they were here testing at charlotte motor speedway two weeks ago and you see all kinds of antennas and lights and different things coming off of the cars they don't do those things on race weekends but the electronics they have in there now and they talk about the smt technology where they can read a lot of the uh you know data coming off of the race cars and the telemetry and everything a lot of that is a pretty closed system as well and i don't know exactly how they're managing it with the new car and you know week in and week out but for example a lot of things when they come into play with nascar 
aren't things that the teams are carrying to the racetrack with them. They're things that are being handed out to them on a given race weekend, just to have some of that control of what they're doing. But I do think from a technology standpoint, and especially with this next gen car coming out next year, that absolutely they've looked to a lot of different racing series. I mean, if someone's familiar with an Australian V8 supercar, they're going to look at the next gen car and see a lot of familiarity, but a lot of the things that we're talking about here, you know, gearboxes and all of that are starting to come into play. So it's really nice to see them embracing the technology you know but again they're um they're they're pretty strict and and cautious if you will about anything that might come into play that um someone is going to be able to sneak something in there that you know is something new to the sport but i think they do a fairly good job of trying to manage that parity thanks brad peter you've sat quietly for a while you've got various thoughts on first of all you you've increased your activity with nascar substantially so you could comment on the latest nascar car but then you've overheard what you saw Pat doing with Formula One, and you know that very well. So perhaps you could give a perspective, your own view on what might happen with NASCAR in the years ahead and whether Formula One are on a road to success or ruin. I, yeah, I, think, uh, I think it was a great shame in Formula One that they didn't, uh, they didn't sing the praises of how efficient the engine was before, but, but, yeah, before Liberty came along. There were some massive gains there and hybrid packages, et cetera, that the spectators didn't really know about. All they could hear was that the things were a lot quieter than they had been before when they loved all the, the screaming V8s and V10s. So uh, I think Formula One nowadays is, is far more attuned to what it's got to be. And I, I agree with the, the way it's going. I think the sad thing is that we're probably being pushed too far by our politicians, too fast, I should say, by our politicians to go down the EV route. And I felt personally that there was uh, that there was a, a bit more time in the hybrid. We just had, had some, a big uh, influx of very efficient three-cylinder uh, um, internal combustion engines that were hitting road cars and suddenly they're out of date and they're all being, having to be replaced by electric electric vehicles. I think, Chris, you're a great one for saying politicians have voted in for five years. So, you know, they, they don't have to worry about what's going to be down the line. And when everyone was talking about the EV vehicles being around in 2040, then they were going, no, let's make it 2030, uh, 2035. No, let's make it 2030. And I'm just not sure that the, the infrastructure, for sure, in the UK especially, is just not up with it. And we are going to see big problems with uh, supplying that amount of power to, to all these charges, uh, etc. Within motorsport, we are uh, doing quite a lot of hybrid packages, actually. We've done the British touring car one that races next year but our biggest program uh, which we're very proud of is a collaboration between Xtrap and Bosch and Williams to introduce hybrid packages to uh, the ACO and IMSA the LMDH series uh, and I would uh, uh, there's, there's other series that are looking at similar sorts of packages I'm a little bit worried that you know Pat used the word greenwashing there might be a little bit of that because it is just a small part of the total power of the car but uh, uh, I think it's, it's in some cases it's used as a push to pass. Uh, it would have been nice to see that pit stops could only take place under electric power. I think a, a few people have looked at that, but we're not there yet. Um, so, it, yeah, I think that program is, is great. And I, I would be uh, very surprised if NASCAR are not looking very closely at that for the future, because uh, they really have opened their eyes up to, uh, you know, new technology and, and, uh, and introducing that to the formula. So I, I would be, uh, we would certainly expect that. And we have designed that gearbox so that at any point in time, it could have a hybrid package on it or uh, something else that people always consider is a paddle shift system, uh, which some are not in favor of. They like to see the, the drivers fighting a, a manual gear lever as they do in Australia with great effect, uh, Australian supercars. Um, so yeah, we've always, that gearbox that's in NASCAR is incredibly flexible uh, and whatever we're asked to do, we can do with it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's. Um, I think Pat's got it right, and, and I'm I'm excited uh, to see how Formula One goes because it it is the flag the flagship for our industry. You know what goes on in there does trickle down. Paddle shift gearboxes started in Formula One, and now in most other formulas, they're they're what everybody uses. And um, so, as there are many other examples as well. So I watch with interest. Thanks, Peter. In actual fact, that slogan I came up with the. the uh, remember that the life of a battery is now longer than the uh, life of a politician in in, in uh, our governance. And I, when I said it a few years ago, I wasn't absolutely sure. Now I'm absolutely certain <laughs> that it applies. Uh, but I don't know quite know what we do with that. 
Um, Pat, I'm just going to throw up some of these questions because I want to, can you measure emissions on a Formula One car? And if you can, why don't you? Um, they congratulate thermal efficiency. How will the loss of the MGUH impact the PU efficiency numbers? Nice, easy ones, Pat. Uh, I think I think that was from Don, wasn't it, about the uh, emissions? Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, you, you, you've touched a, a nerve there because I, <laughs> I really think we should be um, measuring emissions. Now, that's, a, that's quite a difficult thing to do. And we, we've actually just done a, a series of single cylinder tests where we were trying to do it unsuccessfully, um, but we have got some more tests going. But I, I think that what we would like to do is um, we would like to sort of try and push the engine manufacturers into a, a realm where the emissions are lower. Now, you can imagine with the sort of efficiency we got with our engines, we're, we're very, very clean burning. So there's not much in the way of particulates. Um, we're tackling CO2 with the uh, with the the uh, sustainable fuels, but NOx is a problem, um, particularly when you run slightly lean like we do. Um, so yeah, it, it does become a problem. You need to to get even leaner if you really want to get rid of the NOx or, or get the combustion a bit cooler. So there, there's still a lot to do. Actually, measuring it is difficult. Um, after treating it is difficult. So yeah, we're not there yet, but uh, but things we, we need to do. And I can't remember the last question, Chris was. How, how will the loss of the MGU-8 ah, yeah. impact the PU efficiency? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really interesting thing because when we started looking at the 2026 engine, we, we had two things in mind. Do we really push the, the efficiency even further? Uh, and I set a target of getting up to 60% thermal efficiency. And the only way, of course, we could do that is if we did co-optimization of the fuel and engine together. So if we're going to synthesize fuels, why, why do they have to be like gasoline? They, they don't have to. They, they could be something much more, I hesitate to use the word exotic, but something you know that, that pushes some of the boundaries of, of regular gasoline forward. So we, we could have done that. Um, but in actual fact, as we sort of debated it, we, we realized that one of the things we needed to do is we needed to bring the cost of these engines down. You know, they, the, the cheapest engine out there is way over a million dollars. Um, the most expensive is double that. So, you know, they, they are expensive. We wanted to bring that, that, that price down. And the MGUH has been a, a great thing for, for hitting these very high efficiencies. But what's a little bit unusual about a Formula One engine is it, it, it's at its most efficient a wide open throttle, full power. And um, most road engines, of course, that, that's not the case. They, they get their best specific fuel consumption at somewhere a little bit below best torque, for example. So the MGUH was certainly helping us to our, our, our really good numbers, but wasn't terribly relevant. Now, I did once have this sort of dream about uh, an 18-wheeler truck, I think you'd call it in America, you know, a big semi, with perhaps a, a one-litre four-cylinder engine running flat chat in it, and, you know, with, with very efficient combustion and everything, effectively a little Formula One engine in there. And, yeah, that would be great, because you would be running it at, at, at uh, yeah, really high output all the time. And then something like an MGUH is... Is worthwhile because you're putting a lot of enthalpy into the exhaust so you can recover it but for everyday use it's actually not that relevant uh, uh, an item so we decided that what we would do in 26 is we would get a bit more road relevant so we've, we've taken that off it will drop our efficiency as will our fuel because we're, we're going to bring the fuel much more into what's termed a drop-in fuel. In other words, a fuel that is more suitable for road cars than, than the fuel we've got at the moment. And uh, yeah, we, in 2026, we won't be hitting, you know, the sort of mid 50% efficiencies, but we will have something that will be very transferable onto light vehicles. Thanks, Pat. I've got, a, I've got quite a few simple little questions, and these are quick answers to you guys. Otherwise, I'm trying to satisfy as many people as I can. Somebody's asked this, Peter. How did Extract finally succeed in off-road racing after a tough start some years ago? And does Extract make gearboxes or gear sets for USA Saturday night races or drag races? 
Go for it. Uh, no, we don't do for the, uh, the the sort of Saturday night racing. We um, we have had to specialise now in these larger contracts. Uh, so many of our design, uh, you know, we've got uh, eighty guys in design, um, and so they they take up a lot of time when we have to do a program like uh, like NASCAR. So we've tended, sadly, to move away from our roots, which were actually in rallycross, um, and so we uh, we concentrate on these other big big programs. Um, uh, sorry, Chris, for the first off question. Off-road, right? As you mentioned, rally yeah, yeah, we're, we're really proud of that. Yeah, we've just come first and second in Baja, so <laughs> that was a great, uh, a great result. Uh, now, wait think... a minute, Peter. Wait a minute, Peter. That's not happened straight away. For goodness' sake, be <laughs> no. We've been, we've been there for a long time. In fact, X Track started in rallying, uh, world rallying, um, and still have a big presence in that with Toyota and Skoda. Um, uh, but uh, I th- I'm going to be honest and say I think we were probably caught out a little bit uh, about how much demand there was, or how much you know, the, the, the stresses and the loads on, on these things. Well, these cars have got three foot of wheel movement, um, and uh, you know, if you're used to designing the sort of stuff that Pat's contemporaries want, which is all a little bit twee and light, uh, maybe we, we were just a little bit too uh, look, looking at the, the numbers without uh, without really looking at the reality. And, and I know when I went to Australia to do the, the supercar spec for their new gearbox, I went to the Gold Coast uh, and I could not believe how high the cars were taking off and landing over the curbs. And I just came back and said, I don't care what you say in the FEA uh, finite element analysis department, we're going to make bigger gears because these boys are, they're throwing it around and bouncing off the tire walls is all part of their strategy. Uh, and so we we had a little bit of, of that in the in the US, I'm sure. But yeah, we're we're really proud of where we are now. And yeah. I think the score championship is starting to, to really stretch my uh, my knowledge of stuff over there. But we're we're doing very well in that as well. So. Uh, I take some pride as being the madman who took them, Brad, out into the desert to find <laughs> to try and find the customers. And all I said was the prices you charge, Peter, just aim for the biggest motorhome. And they'll be able to buy an extract transmission. Anyway, that's I, I love the fact that if you want to set up a booth there, you do it alongside the scrutineering queue. Uh, queue. Uh, you know, so all the cars at scrutineering, you're you're there trying to sell to them as they go into scrutineering. It's great. <laughs> Pat, I've, here's a question for you: the strictness of FIA tech inspections and parts replacements in Formula One, Hamilton's DRS measurement, Red Bull wings, etc. Is this the sign of a governing body overreach, or is it nece- a necessary? a necessary evil in a complex sport? Okay. Uh, Yeah, I'm afraid the answer is both. Um, It is a complex sport. It's a big money sport. And therefore, you know, a a limit is a limit. Um, However, I think there's a huge difference between intent and accident. And, you know, if something has gone wrong and you're slightly out of the limits, certainly in the past, um, in the days of the late Charlie Whiting, there were many, many times when he took me aside and said, look, I don't think this is quite right. Just get it fixed for the next race. And that was a, everyone appreciated that approach and and you respected it and you damn well did get it right for the next race because you knew you were in big trouble if you didn't. Uh, I would like to see a little bit more of that. You know, it's a personal opinion. It's not a, not the opinion necessarily of the FIA or Formula One, um, but a limit's a limit. and you know, we, the, these guys are so competitive. Uh, and I say these guys, you know, they are not, not me, of course. That um, uh, yeah, give them an inch and they'll take a mile to use here's a, here's an interesting question. Pat's always been interested in education of young engineers. Um, how and where will be the best place for them to start? And one of this particular writer says, I studied at the MIA School of Race Engineering, which is an online program we've been running for many years. A lot of American guys go to that. So it's interesting that online education using the top class race engineers to educate the next uh, session is entertaining. But then finally, I can ask you both this, uh, Peter and Pat, is there still a creative opportunity today for engineers in motorsport with so many design restrictions and the limited adjustment on the next-gen NASCAR car, is there still a challenge there for future engineers? You can, Peter, you have a go, then Brad, then Pat. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We're extract really proud of our apprenticeship and, and uh, graduate uh, engineering programmes. And, uh, and if you look at Formula One, uh, Pat will vouch, there's so many races now, so demanding, 
a lot of these engineers probably following COVID as well are thinking, do I really want to travel around the world to 23 races uh, at my age or whatever age they're at? Um, and so the, we need some young engineering blood in there. Um, and uh, it, that's going to be really, really important. I think the problem within Formula One teams, uh, when Pat uh, and I were both involved in them, you, you did actually learn to design the whole car. Uh, and I think that's the challenge nowadays, that uh, yep. it's really, really hard for these engineers to get a handle on the whole car as well. The, that's why I'm sure the Adrian Newers of, of this world are, are still incredibly busy um, because the, you know, they come from that era. Um, but there is, is undoubtedly a massive demand for, for young engineers. Thanks, Brad. I was talking about the creative juices of engineers. And is it being stifled? Uh, in some ways, I, but I do think that especially at least the direction NASCAR is going with so many spec parts and everyone literally having the same race cars, parts and pieces and all of that, um, you know, you're not finding a half a second or a tenth of a second anymore. You might be finding a hundredth or a thousandth of a second. And I think that's where engineering truly comes into play. Plus, with very limited track time and 15 minutes of practice on a given race weekend, you're going to need to figure out a whole lot more in the computer than you are on the racetrack. And yeah, I think just coming in on, on that, Chris, you know, in Formula One, we support all the STEM subjects. We, we sponsor Formula One in schools, which is a worldwide competition. Uh, I'm an alumnus of Cranfield University, and now I'm a visiting professor there, and I lecture to the motorsport uh, uh, students there, and indeed in, in other universities. So we certainly support the education side. And in terms of innovation, you know, you just look in different places. Um, some of the things in the last few years, you know, of my sort of competitive career that we, we innovated on, yeah, they're not public knowledge, but wow, they were, they were innovative. They, they really were. Well, thanks, guys. And I'm going to pass back to Francis, but I, I would like you all just to say, are we heading for a positive, innovative future or have we got a problem ahead of us? Pat? Positive. Peter? Yeah, I'll go positive, absolutely. <laughs> and Brad, I, I, I would concur, positive in a big way. <laughs> yeah, well, I must admit, well, those who... Chris, yeah. if if you want an answer, if I if I may say this, we have been, I mean, we are basically uh, humbled and thrilled by all the participation and and endorsement we we have received this week, and that's a really good indication of a bright future. And when you see the lineup of people we have had in the last two days, or last yesterday and this morning, and we have another three and a half days to go uh, with Zach Brown following uh, the next session. That's really an indication how strong our industry is. And, uh, and so thank you uh, all very, very much. I am very privileged to have had the opportunity to meet both Pat and Peter uh, many times over the years. And of course, our dear friend, uh, Chris Ellett, who uh, put an, an awesome panel The concept for ePartrade is basically, in my opinion, there's a big hole in the internet. So the internet started many years ago, but there's never been an online business community for racers on the World Wide Web. The need for ePartrade is actually quite obvious. Basically, people in the business of auto racing need a place online to hang out and get their problems solved. It's extremely simple for a buyer or for a supplier to interact on the platform. The first thing you need to do is sign in, which is free. And the second thing is when you see a product that you're interested in, all you need to do is click on request more information. If it's a company, you click on request more information. And then from there, it is forwarded directly to the buyer or to the supplier. You can go to epartrade.com, you become part of a community of businesses in racing, and it makes uh, sourcing products much easier than just on the internet or using Google. At epartrade, there is no e-commerce. It's literally a connection just like at a trade show. So now, any time of the year, a buyer could reach out to a supplier through an email. More than that, it's a place to go just to keep current every day. So it's a good place to start your workday in your racing business or in your offices of your professional race team. And you know you're current when it comes to new technology, industry news, technical papers, technical videos, all of that and more. We're not looking for a million hits per day. 
All we want is people who are really the volume buyers of racing products in the racing industry to be part of the little world of EPAR trade. We have racing businesses participating from around the world. So you get suppliers from around the world, you get buyers from around the world. EPAR trade really eliminates having to travel, closing down your shop. Now you have a place to showcase globally your racing product and technology. There are two types of people, racers and everyone else. Racer Magazine is for those who believe that racing is a way of life. Racer embodies the excellence that defines a sport driven by passion, courage, and ingenuity. Get one year of both Racer's print and digital edition for only $39 with instant access to our entire digital issue archive. Subscribe now at info.racer.com.